Well, uh, welcome back to this uh, journey through scripture. We're taking one book of the Bible each week. And uh, today I'm, I'm just going to try to ask a question. Who is like God? And you might be thinking, wow, that's a really uh, weighty way to start the conversation. Um, but that is my question today. Who is like God? And it's actually the Hebrew name for the prophet that we're looking at. His name is Micah, and that Hebrew name is actually, it means, who is like God. Now, quite interesting that he has that name, and he's going to ask that question here for us. Um, but there's several Old Testament books of the Bible, as you've hopefully been going through this journey through Scripture with us, uh, books like Exodus, books like Deuteronomy, uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, it basically answers that question. There's no one like this God. And so I hope you're here listening, uh, gathering with us right now, really processing this, because that is the question to you is, who is like this God? Is there anyone like this God? And um, So here we are with a, a quick narrative summary. We try to do a quick narrative summary to, to kind of get a get clued in to, to the book. Um, that we're covering each week, and then I'll give a sample passage as well. Um, why is Micah in the Bible? That's what I'm asking, or was asking this week. Why is it here? And it's his purpose to remind us that God, even though he's depicted as a judge uh, through this powerful book, it's about a, probably a 20-minute read, he's depicted as a judge. It's God's ultimate purpose is not to destroy, but it's to redeem and to restore. That's what God is really up to. And so in Micah, there's this back and forth between judgment and hope. Micah toggles back, back and forth between those. There's, the judgment's gonna come on pretty thick, pretty heavy, and then it almost like quickly shifts gears and goes into hope. And then it shifts back again towards judgment and hope. So there's that uh, playing back and forth between those two. And Micah is doing something that the prophets, as we've been learning through this, the prophets always do as you're reading through a prophet, and they have these voice. There's a voice that the, that the prophet is bringing. And the prophet is, is, is either talking about idolatry or injustice. And so you get to some of these books like Micah, and you say, well, which one is it? Is it just that they got their uh, God wrong? <laughs> Was it idolatry that, that Micah is after? Or is it injustice? And the answer is both, both. In fact, throughout these biblical prophets, it's usually the idolatry that ends up leading to more and more perpetual injustice in the way that we dehumanize ourselves and others. Well, the question I also ask is, what time is it? What time is it in this book? As I'm reading through it this week, uh, what time is it? Uh, it's Micah's living around the same time as the prophet Isaiah. So this is around 750 years or so before Christ. Um, and if you're new to all this biblical accounting of timeline, it's uh, 700 or 750 BC. Those numbers are going from higher to lower because it's before Christ. It's counting down. And uh, Micah and all the prophets, they have this immediate future that they're talking about. Like, have you done this? Have you started reading through the prophets and you think, wait, are they talking about something that's just about to happen? Or are they talking about something that hasn't happened yet? Once again, the answer is both, and they switch gears on you pretty quickly. And a lot of times, um, unless you're some biblical scholar, you have no idea 
um, which one they're talking about. Is it an immediate thing or is it something in the future? I'll give a couple of examples. Something that happened uh, 700 years after Michael, uh, Micah's prophecy is the Messiah's birth. Chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, and you will recognize this as I read it, but it's a very famous passage during Christmas. But Micah prophesies about this Messiah coming, and it actually happens 700 years after his prophecy. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I don't know if that, how that strikes you when we ask that question, who is like God? But we're already learning. Micah's already letting us know that it's a God who is able to know about the future. It's a, it's a God who actually has a plan, has thought through the whole redemptive arc of the story. There's something that happens during Micah's lifetime. So one of these things that he's prophesying actually happens in 732 BC, which is right around the time that he's writing. And that is that God sends the big, bad Assyrian empire to come in and destroy them and take them off into exile. He talks, he talks about that as though it's going to happen. And of course it actually happens during his lifetime. And then something that happens about 200 years after Micah's prophecy, around 587 BC, God sends the big bad Babylonian empire to come and do the same thing that the Assyrians had just done, takes Israel into captivity. And then this one really blew my mind this week. Um, is everybody doing okay, by the way? We haven't lost you yet, right? Okay, great. So we're asking what time is it according to the prophet? How does he deal with things that are immediately present or far future? This next one that I saw is uh, he's talking about a future restoration that hasn't happened yet. And as Keith was just so beautifully leading us in that song of crying out and singing, come Lord Jesus, come and restore. Because you and I know that things are really messed up. Well, Micah's already predicting that that's going to happen, that that's on God's heart to happen. That's in chapter 4, verse 3. And of course, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, that prophet's saying the same thing. It's almost verbatim here. It's, and that, again, is even interesting. But it's because it's on God's heart, and this is what it says. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Can you imagine what this will be like? Can you imagine the peace? He says, neither shall they learn war anymore. They, they won't learn it. It means to train. They won't even be training for war. All this self-protection that we feel this need to have, and not just ending there, but um, killing others. So let me just ask this other big question I had this week is why does God bring about judgment? What, 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 is, what is Micah really up to? Is, is Micah just some angry prophet? Is he, is he, I mean, what, what is it? What, what has gotten so bad? Why is God so angry with these people? And so here is the indictment. The indictment, again, is the idolatry and the injustice. And number one, they're offering, um, they're offering sacrifices without repenting. 
we've already looked at a couple of prophets uh, who were really telling people that, look, it does not impress God whatsoever for you to bring your religious hypocrisy into church or out there anywhere. Um, the other indictment is there's unjust economic practices. If you want all that specificity about economic practices and the injustice around it, it's in this book right here. It's Micah. And he talks about greed, 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 something that we should be talking about in the church a whole lot more than we talk about. The prophet Micah is talking about it. He says that Israel's leaders have become wealthy through theft and greed. There's uh, not only greed, but then that leads to corruption. Micah says that Israel's prophets are happy to offer God's promises of protection for those who can pay for it. This almost sounds like the Protestant Reformation of I'm going I'm to buy an indulgence for my salvation. I'm going to pay my way out of it. And that's what's happening here. Here's an indictment. God is angry that these who should be representing him are corrupt. There's bribery. They bend justice to favor the wealthy. Talk, talk about systemic things. Talk, talk about a system that's already like manufactured and intentionally made in such a way so as to benefit others and take life away from others. Micah's dealing with the same thing. There's this obscene wealth that leads to, and I'm just quoting from Micah, cheating, fraud, shady deals, measuring out grain with dishonest scales, and the rich are buying their way with bluffs and lies. Old story, new story, right? A seminary professor of mine once said, it's like, it's like modern day we have, this is cold coffee we warmed up. Some of the same issues that we're dealing with. Uh, he goes on here, Micah says that wealthy landowners owners are exploiting the poor and the weak through the seizure of property. They're treated no better than animals, Micah says. He says they break the other people's bones in pieces. They chop them up like meat for the pan. Whoa. Are you, feel, are you feeling the indictment? I, I just thought I would shine a light on some specificity there of, of what it is that's getting God angry. It's injustice. And all of this, uh, the aforementioned, is a clear violation of what was written in the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. <laughs> The Torah declares it's illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they are poor. Go back and look at Leviticus 25, Numbers 36. Well, if, if that is uh, leaving you feel any kind of way right now, I'll, I'm going to ask a, trend, a transitioning question as we go through this study together. And I'm going to ask, why does God forgive these unfaithful people? If that's the indictment, which it is, if, the, if those folks are guilty, which they are, if we are those people, what is it about God? What is it about God? Why would God forgive such people? Well, this takes us to our sample passage. Sample passage I've chosen is chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. I invite you to follow along as I read it. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so three questions guy is going to guide us through this one. I'm full of questions this morning. I want you thinking and feeling with me as we go uh, through this. Um, three questions. The first one is, what's so different about this God? What is it? And I hope that helps you and your thought process, but I also hope it gives us some sort of template and encouragement around how to answer a friend who's probably asking the same question. Who is this God? What do you mean when you say you're a Christian or a Jesus follower? Who is that person? So what's so different about this God? The second question is, how does this God forgive? How is it even possible? And then the last question is, what does knowing this God produce? What is it actually going to produce in you by knowing a God like that? First one, first question is, what's so different about this God? Well, right off the bat, we would have to see, uh, according to the Bible and specifically Micah today, God is a person. He's framing that quite, quite well. Don't miss it. Who is a God like you? Immediately, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about bullet points of the faith or this faith, faith versus that faith, globally speaking, whatever faith one may come from. But he's talking about a God, a relationship. And you'll remember the words we just read that said the remnant of his inheritance, the remnant of his inheritance, God has a people. This is a relationship. This is the who of the God that we're talking about right now. God has a relationship with his people. Earlier in Micah chapter six, verses three and four, he says, oh, my people. God is saying, oh, my people. He's grieving for them. There's judgment for them, yes, but there's also grief and lament for them because he loves them. He says, oh, my people who I redeemed and brought out of Egypt. Don't miss that when you begin to think about who is this God? Who is the God that I follow and worship? It's a God who's in relationship with you, that you hopefully are a part of this remnant of his possession. You are his people. Well, you probably noticed a lot of words in there, too, that we just read, like transgressions and iniquity. I want to try to define some of those real, real quickly. Uh, basically, in the Bible, uh, and there's a word named sin as well. In the Bible, sin is missing the mark, and it's also meaning the consequences of having missed that mark. And so, therefore, there are sins that you and I do, but then there are sins that have been done against us and to us, and even done prior to us even arriving in the story. So there's the consequences of sin that bear down upon you, that bear down upon us and how we relate to each other, as well as in our culture. And the word uh, transgressions here in verse 18, it takes sin to uh, like, like a little bit uh, deeper of a level. You know, there's a difference in the word transgression versus the word sin. And the word transgression is knowingly and willfully sinning. There's certain sins that you and I are into, enter into that, that there are times where we think, oh, I wasn't even aware. I, did, I didn't know that. I'm aware now, and therefore that begins to change things for me moving forward. 
But a transgression, biblically, is known as something that is a willful choice. I know it. I may know that I'm oppressing the poor, but I'm going to keep on doing it because it's benefiting me. Back to our context there. Micah chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 talks about these transgressions. It says, they all lie in wait for blood and hunt one another with a net. That's how they're treating one another. Their hands are on what is evil so that they may do it well. That sounds pretty intentional. Sounds pretty sick. So that they can do it well. And what does it say about this God? What's so different about this God? Answer, God passes over their transgressions. He passes over their transgressions. That's how God relates to those transgressions. We find in Psalm 32, verse 1, where our writer there, David, says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Do you know that? Have you experienced that forgiveness? And you could join in with David there in that psalm saying, wow, I'm blessed. I'm privileged. I've gotten grace. I didn't get what my sins deserve. I didn't get what my transgressions, but God has passed over my transgressions. Verse 18 also mentions the word iniquities. This one goes even a step farther than transgressions. You think, oh, I thought that was as far as we could go. Like meaning to do evil? How does it get any worse? The word iniquities is to continue doing the transgressions without ever repenting. It's kind of scary. It's such a cold, dead, the Bible would even describe it, dead heart that just continues to do it without any sign of repentance. Micah chapter 2 verse 1 is the example. It says, woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds, At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. I planned it, I'm going to do it, and I feel pretty numb about it. What does God do with that? It says that God pardons iniquity. God pardons iniquity. This this is who your God is. He pardons this. Psalm 51, verse 2, David. Different psalm, but same scenario where David had gone into sin with Bathsheba, lust, adultery, which ended up to murder. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Here in Psalm 51, verse 2, it's his psalm of repentance. He finally cries out saying, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. This is the God that David knew. This is the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible that says later in our passage here that he delights in steadfast love. I mean, if you want a text to go back and memorize or meditate on or have shape your identity, go back and look at this, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Because in it, it says that God delights in steadfast love. He has compassion on us. He casts, try to understand this one. He casts our sin into the depths of the sea. God's mercy is more powerful than his anger and his judgment. That's who God is. And then in verse 20, as we keep learning about what's so different about this God, it's it's that this God's going to keep his promise. Verse 20, I hope you're looking at it right now. He says, you know, that 
God's going to keep his promise to show covenant love to Abraham. Why is he bringing up Abraham? Why would he do such a thing? Why is he bring up Jacob? Because God has promised. Refer back to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. God has already promised that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. People will come to know this God of grace through Abraham. So God's going to keep his promises. That's who this God is. Second question is, uh, just, just how? Just okay. So he's going to forgive. He sounds very loving. This is a, this. This sounds pretty compelling so far, right? But how? And it's just his words. Like, okay, I pardon you. Therefore, you're pardoned. Um, think of Psalm 103, verse 12. That says, "As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us." That sounds amazing. Or another one in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. It doesn't say from some of our unrighteousness, but it says from all of our unrighteousness. Wow. This is great news. How does God do this? I see in the text and also elsewhere in the Bible that it's more than just words. It's more than just words. There's action of justice. And so now we're back to that word again. We've been on that theme of justice for several weeks now going through these prophets. But justice has action to it. There's a restorative element to justice. So an improper view of God as judge would be a God in a black robe sitting in some courtroom just giving some ruling on something. But rather this judge takes action, takes it upon himself, takes responsibility to go back and make things right. It's beautiful how this begins to unfold. Micah does it, or rather God does it through Micah by announcing something here for us in chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, here's that famous Christmas passage all over again. This is how God is going to be able to bring about justice. This is how God is going to be able to forgive us from our transgressions. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. When was that passage quoted? You've read it in the New Testament, I'm sure. Well, it's when there's a, there's a disgruntled and very curious King Herod who's, this is in Matthew chapter 2, by the way, he's curious, as so is is all of Jerusalem, about where is this king of the Jews? Where is this Messiah going to be born? And they, Matthew's recording this, but they quote Micah to answer King Herod right there. So there's a direct prophecy about Jesus. I mean, the exact place where the shepherd king is going to be born. Micah's just sort of throwing that out there, right out there in front of them. And then this last part of that, that he's he's actually going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's also from of old. Hmm, That's confusing. Uh, That's quite an antinomy. Two apparent things contradicting one another until we realize that there's incredible depth, complexity, and beauty 
in those, what we thought were opposing things. And that is John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the other gospel writer, saying, the origins of this one who's coming, who is called the Word, who is God's very presence with us. Uh, he says, in the beginning was the Word. When was that? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Micah is just dumping some hope on these people, this original audience, and, and us as well, that in the midst of this, this warning of judgment, there's a Messiah, a king, a shepherd who's coming. He's going to draw his people back. He's going to gather them out of the exile, which they're about to go into. And then he's going to rule them. He's going to rule them, not with a harsh hand, as all the other rulers that they've been used to would do. He's going to rule them in righteousness. So what's being said here about Bethlehem? I mean, what's the point? Okay, great. You gave us the locale of where he was going to be born. That's impressive. Okay, I'll give you that one. But what is it? I think it's a reminder. Mike is wanting to give a reminder of how God's story works. It's out of smallness that God's going to bring greatness. It's out of what you can't imagine that God's going to make happen. That's why he's throwing little town of Bethlehem on them. Bethlehem was, was not a large, impressive military city. It's this tiny little place. And it's out of that little tiny place that God's going to do something amazing. He's going to save the entire world through his son who's going to be born into that place. The whole point here that Mike is getting at here around how does this God forgive? It's to say, you don't save yourself. You can't save yourself. God's kingdom is always different. God's kingdom always looks backwards to us. God's kingdom always seems upside down or, or reversed in some way. And God uses those very things to, the New Testament says, to shame the wise. To invite those who think they're smarter than God to maybe reconsider. So how does God forgive? It's through coming to us. It's through this incarnation. It's through the, it's through the very life of Christ. It's through the death of Christ. It's through the resurrection of Christ. Or as Titus, another New Testament writer, would say it, the, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared through this one, this shepherd king, this Messiah. Last question we look at today is, what does knowing this God produce in you? Micah shows us how knowing this God produces something different in us. If you're, if you're able, I want you to look at chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And before revealing to us how this produces something new in us, he reveals something that it should not produce in us. It's almost like a coach saying, not this, but this. So in verses 6 and 7, he's depicting 
these people wondering, wow, if God is so amazing, loving, and compassionate, and all these powerful, and all these things, I'll quote, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? There's already uh, some, some bribing, some bribing going on here. Watch it. It's going to escalate a little bit. So if that wasn't enough, he says, shall I come with calves a year old? Well, if that won't do it, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams? He does it again. With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? He goes one more step. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Micah's poetically, beautifully showing us the absurdity, the absurdity, how pitiful it is of a works-based righteousness, of a works-based salvation. Can I just please God? I'm going to barter. I'm going to, I'm going to bribe, essentially, what's going on. And he, more beautiful than I can do, Micah is attaching it right back to their, um, their bribery and their um, injustice that they're doing. Uh, earlier in the chapters here. Well, then he gets to verse 8. And I know you've heard this verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard a number of, of sermons on this text, verse eight. Verse six and seven aren't mentioned. Context of Micah is not mentioned. Much else about the whole Bible is not even talked about, but verse eight. And I would even say that there are times in looking at this verse where you can attempt that verse without the gospel. Should we be doing justice? Absolutely. Should we be loving kindness? Absolutely. Should we be walking humbly with our God? Yes. And yet, there can even be an attempt to do that without the gospel. Without the gospel, such as, hey, go have a great week. Go do some justice. Go love kindness. Go walk humbly with your God. Let's go do it. All right. I got it. Have a great week. Or good luck. And I just, in reflecting and thinking through this, just started knowing and, and, look, and just seeing how Micah is not here charting a new pathway to be accepted by God. He, he just told you what not to do in verses 6 and 7. And so he's not even using verse 8 as a way to chart some sort of righteous pathway towards God. So here in verse 8 is not things that contribute to our justification, but it's the evidences of our justification. Someone who has experienced God's grace someone who knows that they are forgiven, they end up expressing it through doing justice, acts of justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with their God. Real quickly, God's justice is, I believe, social. I believe it's social because it's relational. We say God is a restorative judge. And what is he restoring? But a relationship with us and a relationship with others, even a relationship with creation. So I believe the God, I believe the God of the scriptures, uh, justice is social. 
It's about restoring relationships. So doing justice means instead of taking advantage of others, instead of using privileges, you end up placing others above yourself. Wow, how radical is that? Did he just say place others above my needs, my wants and desires? Yeah, it means helping, it means advocating, it means reparations, it means getting into action to be a co-participant with God, to restore things, making changes to the systems and the social structures so that the vulnerable are protected, not taken advantage of. And one quick application here is to listen to your brother or sister and sister who are going through suffering of injustice. Go listen. Go sit down. Go take some time. Go grieve. Go lament. Go feel. Go partner. Go get into action. Sound radical? Putting ourselves above others is, or putting others above ourselves is radical. Go read Mark chapter 10, Jesus' own words saying, hey, Jesus speaking, I came not to be served, but I came to serve others and to lay my life down. That's what this looks like. That's what knowing this God begins to look like in our lives. What about loving kindness? It means, I think it means being generous in the way that you forgive others. By the way, when we read loving kindness, some of us chafe at that, thinking, well, they don't deserve it. What if they do wrong against me again? I don't know how long I can stand that. How many times do I need to forgive them? By the way, there's a story about that in the Bible as well. But loving kindness doesn't mean you just put up with kindness. It means you love it. You love that God is kind. You see God's heart of kindness towards others that need it because you know that you need it. So there's a generosity in the way that we forgive others because God is radically and continually, radically, patiently loves you and me and is forgiving towards us. The last one here, walk humbly with your God. This, this again underscores that personal relationship a personal relationship that, you, hey, you may have had a busy week and they feel like you haven't even connected with God. And this, this is wonderful right now that you are connecting with God. So this is an encouragement. As you leave here, continue to connect with God. Go meet up with this God. Spend time reflecting, meditating, prayerfully considering this. But to walk humbly with your God would probably mean to ask God something like, why me, God? What motivated you to give me your mercy, your forgiveness? Because you'll notice pride usually says to God, well, of course, of course I'm going to get your mercy. I'm pretty good after all. It's just those people out there that I'm not so sure about. Walking humbly with your God. It's also a confidence in God's present and future Faithfulness, whatever is happening right now in your story. We're such a diverse group. Just in this church body, such a diverse group. But walking humbly with your God is also a confidence. 
It's a confidence. Not in, hey, look, I've got some great plan. i got it all figured out. But rather, God, you're up to something. God, just like you were with little old Bethlehem, you had something stored, something planned. I, I, don't, I don't even know what's going to happen. But based off of your past faithfulness, you will be faithful moving forward. I don't know how, I don't know when. That's walking humbly with your God. Who, who is a God like this? As you think and you reflect, I'm mindful of even those disciples in first century that Jesus began asking because Jesus noticed that some people were not going to follow him anymore once they realized who he was and what he had truly come to do. He asked his disciples what they were going to do and who might they go and follow. And they reply with, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. God, there's... There's no one like you. And Father, that's not just a preacher saying that. It's not even just multiple prophets saying that. But God, you, in the scriptures, you say that about yourself. And so these other little G gods of greed, pride, superiority, lust, and the list goes on. They all leave us dehumanized and empty. And God, yet you alone are beautifully different. You are. Help us see you and help us fall deeper in love with you, trusting you with, with all of our being. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.